0: God, from the sky. Take away everything and make everybody high. But you know what life is worth, you will look for your first earth. And now when you see the light, yeah, you stand up for your right. Be the hour, she can't stand up for your right. <laughs> With
1: Well, well, well. Here we are. It's Friday. Another day until they tell us that our calendars change. And we're going to talk a little bit about predictive analytics in the sense of exactly what they're predicting. See, there's a lot of people saying, oh, well, Homeland predicts. Well, that's an enjoy the show. That was the point. If you rewatch that interview. But one thing people don't seem to understand is what and who and how everything who's in control of all this. There's havoc now, but you need to see templates. And that's the thing. See, yesterday I did a little bit of pondering. I was in a very agitated mood. Uh, I was extra spicy due to frustration, of course. Because the question one should always ask is who, what, where, what's going on here? I'm not understanding who's really in control and what's going on. And that's understandable. Everyone would feel like that. But as I've always said, they always tell you who they are. They always tell you what they're going to do. If I have access to predictive analytics, do you think others don't? While many of us are awaiting artificial intelligence to enter our life, they're already here. Those technologies are already here. I mean... Sometimes you just can't tell the people, oh, this This its really hard to stomach. I mean, everyone's under the impression that, you know, we went from telephone lines to cell phones in under 100 years. But we have thousands of years of history of being in the dark. So what happened? Did it start to rain brains? Everyone started to advance very quickly. History paints pictures of leaders of the past. Really weird. And the thing is, it's as if they're all following a script. Oh, someone who has clearly said, I have written scripts. Very interesting to see that everyone's in agreement. In 2023, there are no scripts. This is why you're seeing chaos. This is why things can't be hidden anymore. Because the way you defeat insurrections, cues of a people-run government, or if you are under dictatorship, kingship, a monarchy, or maybe a globalist nation, the way you win that is by educating and changing the minds and the hearts of the people that are part of those nations. Now, while many of us think, oh, well, the whole world is looking to America, yes. But there have been nations across the world fighting the same fight you're fighting, the same fight we are all fighting. And all their leaders, either they be officially in office or not officially in office, have been put through fire. Today when I saw that they released President Trump's tax returns, it solidified something for me as someone myself who has been forged in fire. And I have said this before. You must stand true to the things that you say. If you decide to pick a side, you can't sway. And if you don't sway, Evil comes for you and tries to humble you and destroy you with everything they've got. They will take everything and twist it and throw it back in your face. They will hold you accountable for things you haven't even done. Maybe things that have been done against you. And we see that with President Trump. And that, in a sense, today's headlines, oh, they released his tax returns, gave me the biggest sigh of relief. They are humbling him to the ground. They're trying to, that is. Because the good thing is, is that the people can feel truth and see truth. Now, many eyes are starting to see and many ears are starting to hear. So allow me to show you a nation and what is happening there that you don't even hear about in the news. That is executing the things that your fourth unelected branch of government within the United States is trying to deploy on you. Because the United States isn't the only one fighting. And I think it's uh, very important to understand who some of these enemies are. I pray for President Trump for everything he's done and what is being done for him. To not have any footing and simply be used against him. They are coming hard. And we'll just sit prettier and watch. Now, I just want you guys to listen to a few minutes of a king's message to the UN.
2: In the name of God, the merciful, the compassionate, Mr. President, Your Excellency Secretary General, Excellencies, Majesties, Ladies and gentlemen, at the outset, I would like to congratulate you, Mr. President, on behalf of the delegation of the Kingdom of Morocco on your election to preside over this session. We wish you all success in your endeavors and we commend the work undertaken by your predecessor, Mr. Abdullah Shahid, and we commend the outcomes of his presidency. We reiterate our support to the efforts of the U.N. Secretary General, Mr. Antonio Guterres, aiming at reforming our organization. We assure him of our support and of supporting his initiatives and proposals contained in his report entitled Our Common Agenda. President the 77th session of the General Assembly convenes while our world is witnessing multidimensional crises, with global intertwined repercussions. Three years after the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, our world is facing a series of deep and successive challenges and crises. What is preventing us from effectively managing these crises is not the fact that we are not aware of its manifestations and interactions. It is rather the lack of a true political will. The multilateral system is currently witnessing a crisis that we can clearly see on three interdependent levels. The first level has to do with a crisis of values. The principle of cooperation and solidarity on which the United Nations was established is being undermined. Narrow national interests are are given uh, the priority over global humanitarian values. The second level has to do with divisions within international institutions. These institutions have become a theater of a competition that is negatively affecting multilateral global work. The third level relates to the fragmentation of multilateral work in the frame of narrow circumstantial alliances that are not commensurate with the current complicated crisis. The current international circumstances require courage and objectivity in order to answer the following questions. Do we want our organization to be capable of leading the strategic changes and facing the major challenges of our times? Or do we want the organization to limit itself to crisis management? Is our organization still capable of reaching a global consensus and finding finding innovative solutions to tackle the current and future challenges? We would like to say here that those who believe that their own capabilities are enough to contain these challenges are not being realistic. Multilateral work was never a luxury, and the crisis we are witnessing today affirm this and prove that the security and prosperity of some depends on the stability and prosperity of all. The kingdom of Morocco reaffirms its belief that multilateral work should be based on collective interaction and on a consensual approach. This was reaffirmed by His Majesty, the King Mohammed VI in in his statement before the 59th General Assembly of the United Nations when he said, Morocco reaffirms its commitment to pursue its work To establish a new global order, a multilateral order based on justice, international legislation.
1: A new global order. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? Now, we don't talk about Petri dishes origins. We hardly do. I mean, I've mentioned it, but nobody likes to talk about that. Well, I'm going to introduce you to this nation, Morocco, which kind of almost seems like it's Algeria, huh? because it's important that you understand who, what, when, where, and who's really in control. This is
3: a farm in China. This is a McDonald's in New York. This is an apartment complex in Mumbai, and this is a skyscraper in London. What do all of these things have in common? Well, as it turns out, all of these places' successes or failures, economic booms or collapses, and even population explosions or famines might soon be decided by the nation of Morocco, but probably not for the reasons that you might think. In fact, this future economic trajectory was likely decided by a tiny little creature just a couple centuries ago. This is a bat. In the modern world, we view bats as things that both control insect populations as well as creatures that spread rare diseases. But a few hundred years ago, bats were discovered to do something else, something miraculous that would shape our world forever without most people realizing it. In 1802, the European explorer Alexander von Humboldt was traveling through the Peruvian lands when he discovered something strange. You see, the Peruvian lands did not seem like they were suitable for large-scale agriculture, yet the Peruvian fields were filled with lush and healthy-looking crops and he soon discovered that the Peruvian people had been collecting a substance called guano, which is the excretion of bats and some seabirds, and they were using this by spreading it along their crops for the previous several thousand years. So, Alexander von Humboldt ended up bringing this knowledge of guano significantly increasing food production back to Europe, where soon that knowledge would become a key point of interest to the Western world. Because soon after the discovery of guano, food production boomed in the United States and Europe. And all of a sudden, these Western nations went from having a small but significant shortage of food to having a massive surplus of food, which was more than enough to feed all of its citizens and then some. In fact, guano's impact on boosting food production became so important that several wars were fought over guano, such as the Chincha Islands War of 1864 and the war of the pacific in 1879 the united states actually became so enamored with guano that it passed the guano islands act which allowed any american citizen to claim and annex any island that had any substantial amount of guano on it and well they did lay claim to roughly 70 of these islands most of which were in the Pacific Ocean. Now you see, guano became so important to the economic population and industrial growth of the Western world, that it arguably became the most vital resource in the entire world. However, in 1913, Fritz Haber would discover a way to synthesize an artificial version of guano that we today call fertilizer. And it was this one event, the discovery of fertilizer that would go on to be known as the detonator for the population explosion of the world soon after starvation in nations that used fertilizer became rare the world's population grew from 1.6 billion to 7.7 billion over the next 100 years food production and crop yields immediately doubled in many areas that used fertilizer nations with typically unsuitable locations to grow food like northern european countries such as norway all of a sudden were able to sustainably grow crops in more areas and well eventually every single country's economic and population growth was indirectly caused by the food surplus created from fertilizer. In fact, it is estimated that roughly 50% of all nitrogen in your body is directly from fertilizer that farms use to grow food. And well, that brings us to today. All of this seems great so far. Fertilizer has allowed many countries to grow, and in some cases become superpowers of the world, where nearly all of their citizens are well fed and have a very little food insecurity. But in 2010, a few scientists began to notice something a little bit worrying. Fertilizer. The compound responsible for a ton of the growth that humanity has seen over the last two centuries might actually be running out. That's because that our fertilizer that has been used to grow our entire civilization over the last couple hundred years needs three things. One of which is a nitrogen-based compound, the second of which is a phosphate, and the third of which is a potassium-based compound. And two of these are compounds that we cannot create from scratch. And those compounds are phosphate and potassium, or in its raw form, potash. You see, potash is a non-renewable resource that is largely controlled by just four countries. Canada is by far the world's largest producer of potash, with over one-third of the world's potash coming from Canada. Russia, Belarus, and China produce between 10 and 20% of the world's potash each, and every other nation in the world combined produces only about 19% of the world's potash. And let's think about that for a second essentially four countries control one ingredient that will dictate who is or isn't allowed to produce fertilizer and because potash resources are being depleted in these countries potash will become a more valuable resource as the world's population continues to grow and the food requirements for the world also grow Now, the world isn't likely going to go through a potash shortage in the next hundred years or so. In fact, our potash reserves could last for several hundred years before we see any shortages. However, phosphate, one of those three key ingredients, is a completely different case. You see, since 2010, there's been a hotly contested debate about when, not if, the world will run out of rock phosphate. The United States Geological Survey estimated that we currently have 260 years worth of phosphate left in the Earth, assuming that the population doesn't grow at all and assuming the population continues to grow at a similar rate at what it is today we have roughly just over 100 years of phosphate left in the earth however those are just estimates that number could be much lower or much higher but really we don't even need to know when the world will run out of phosphate because we are already seeing shortages and also we are seeing countries take drastic economic policies to protect their own phosphate. For example, phosphate prices have increased by roughly 80% since early 2020. In September of 2021, China banned exporting of any of its own phosphate in hopes of assuring that it had enough phosphate to produce enough fertilizer to grow its own food for the foreseeable future. But there is one key aspect that I have left out until this point, and that is this. You see, China has the second largest phosphate reserves in the world, as it owns roughly 5% of the world's phosphate. And keep in mind, that is second on this list and it is already concerned about its phosphate supply. Syria has the third largest amount of phosphate at 3%, Algeria is next at just under 3%, and the rest of the world has only 2% or less each per country in terms of the world's phosphate reserves. But then, at number one, there is the country of Morocco. You see, Morocco owns a whopping 70% of the world's phosphate. And let's think about that for a second. One nation owns 70% of a resource that can dictate which other nations will be able to feed their populations. In fact, within the next several decades, the world's food supply could become dependent upon whoever Morocco chooses to trade with, or who they choose not to trade with. Or maybe, just simply, Morocco will just sell off the phosphate to the highest bidder. There is also the potential for international conflict or cooperation as that has been seen throughout history with any valuable resource. And this would be far from the first time that we have seen wars started or partnerships enacted that revolved around the acquisition of fertilizer. In fact, increasingly every single year, large populous countries like India, Mexico, and Brazil are becoming even more reliant upon Moroccan phosphate or their agricultural industries. And other nations like the United States have been placing tariffs on Moroccan phosphate and going in the other direction. Now, it is worth mentioning that peak phosphorus as some are calling this predicament, may not occur as soon as we think. As mentioned earlier, estimates range from seeing significant shortages relatively soon, to seeing shortages that occur in several hundred years from now. But this peak phosphorus mentality is actually quite similar to what people were saying about oil in the 1950s. Because back then, many scientists assumed that oil production and reserves would peak around the year 1970. Yet, since Since then, the world has discovered substantially more oil in places like Venezuela, Saudi Arabia, Norway, Iran, and China. There was also technological innovations for oil, like fracking, which allowed the extraction of oil in deposits that were previously seen as unextractable because of how difficult it was to, well, extract the oil. All this means is that even though it is predicted that rock phosphates will become significantly depleted over the next several decades, we can't really know for sure. Also, scientists have begun genetically engineering plants to absorb significantly more phosphorus in natural soil to try and avoid the reliance on fertilizer. And so far, those experiments have been minor successes. But at the end of the day, the entire world might be for its fertilizer, something that has never been seen before in the history of the world. All of those old superpowers that owned a large percentage of the world's resources, like the United States had with oil over 100 years ago, the British Empire had with metals in the early 19th century, the Dutch East India Company of the 1600s, or the Hudson's Bay Company in the late 1600s, all of those monopolies could pale in comparison comparison to Morocco's monopoly on phosphate and the world's fertilizer. It is also worth noting that part of Morocco's phosphate reserves are currently in an occupation zone in the Western Sahara, meaning that a lot of those deposits are already in a conflict zone, which could be a sign of things to come. Now, if you enjoyed this video, you may also like my second YouTube channel, where I talk about a lot of similar topics, but in a more fun way. In my return to
1: Morocco, the king of Morocco, huh. where uh, Barack Hussein Obama arises from, you know, and I say this with um, great confidence, predictive analytics play a big deal in these things. Here is a little thing put together by uh, an actual Quran and Islam channel, guys, Hold on to your seats. Wait till you see just who else is fighting until we get to the news that no one's really talking about. You would think all the journalists would be up in arms, but then it would show who's the scriptwriter. See, if you guys remember, we started the Arab Spring about 10 years ago in specific areas. The king of Morocco. You know, those disputed phosphate places are Algerian. We see France coming in hard to the Middle East, right? We see the Moroccan king. Well, you'll see. But first, let's get a little bit of background. People love this kind of stuff. So before we learn about Algeria, and then we could talk about Napoleon, and we could talk about all of these things. But let's just keep it simple today. Let's keep it simple to understand what's really going on. Sometimes you have to look at those that do conduct predictive analytics. Here we go.
4: Assalamu alaikum brothers and sisters and welcome to Quran and Islam. I hope you all are doing your best for the akhirah. Brothers and sisters, you must have heard about the Simpsons and how they make weird stories which actually come true after a few years. Now Allah knows better if it is just a coincidence or if there is a bigger plan behind it. When Donald Trump became the president of America, everybody was shocked. Some people also claimed that the elections had been cheated on since there were a very few chances of Donald Trump winning. But The Simpsons cartoon had predicted this several years ago. Some of the episode's details were strikingly similar to the real life scenes. The Simpsons had also predicted the coronavirus several years ago. They had predicted the use of horse meat in food stalls In 1990s and a huge food scandal came up in the 2000s a lot of huge food chains such as Burger King had been using horse meat the Simpsons had predicted the introduction of smart watches 15 years before it actually happened there are actually several of them but let's talk about what the cartoons have just recently predicted in an episode of the Simpsons called the greatest story ever Doehead. The cartoons have made fun of many religions, but they also have made a cunning, secret prediction and that is of their Messiah. We know that the Messiah of the Jews is the Dajjal. It clearly means that they are predicting the appearance of Dajjal. The main character of the cartoons, Homer, is very non-religious. He makes fun of the Bible, Jerusalem, Hazrat Isa and their religious places. So the local priest Ned takes him to Jerusalem, which is a holy place for the Jews and Christians. The cartoons have also shown the Muslims praying in Jerusalem and the sound of the prayer call. Most importantly, the main character Homer goes into the desert to escape all the religiosity and comes back as the messiah of the people. He is in a white haram the one that Muslims wear while performing Umrah and Hajj. The cartoons also show the Dome of the Rock and the Masjid Al-Aqsa. But of course, they had changed their names and they did not talk about the Muslim side of the narrative either. Anyways, this episode indicates that a highly non-religious, non-serious person will realize in his mid-age that he is the Messiah of the people. In the end of the episode, Homer, the Messiah, goes to the Dome of Rock and gathers the Christians, Jews, and the Muslims. He then introduces them to a new religion which unites all the people to a new religion. Brothers and sisters, we know that there are several Dajjali organizations and groups preparing to welcome the Dajjal, and they are already doing the job of Dajjal, which is to spread fitna and ignorance. Some people believe that these Jewish cartoons are nothing more than a Dajjali fitna a group of people just like Illuminati. Or maybe this is a show produced by the Illuminati. They first spill the beans through a funny cartoon and then the episode and its scenes actually become true. Maybe they themselves are indirectly controlling the major happenings of the world. Otherwise, how is it possible that a cartoon movie predict so much, so accurately. Without doubt, Allah has loosened their ropes so that they can trespass the path of Allah as much as they can. And finally, the superior plan and qudrat of Allah will win. Allah says in the Quran,
1: So, it doesn't matter what Allah says in the Quran. What I'm trying to point out is that their scripts, they all know it in all religions in all nations, they know. So now, let's take a look at Algeria. Let's look at a little bit of Algerian geography. Let's see who Algeria is. A lot of people don't even know where they are, so let's get cracking.
5: Brother, how much French these people speak to you, do not call them French. It's time to learn geography. No! Hey everybody, I'm your host Paul Barbato. Today we're going to talk about Algeria. Let's dissect the flag. The flag of Algeria is pretty simple, just white, green, and a red crescent and star. The white representing peace, the green representing Islam, and the crescent and star not only representing Islam, but the red of the crescent and star also representing the blood of those who fought for Algeria. By the way, full disclaimer, you're gonna start to kind of see a pattern going on of a lot of countries using red on their flags to represent the blood of those spilled for who fought for something. Just a little heads up. As of right now, Algeria is the largest country in all of Africa. That title used to belong to Sudan. However, back in 2011, Sudan split up into two separate countries, decreasing their landmass and giving that title over to Algeria. Algeria is located in a North African region known as the Maghreb, which is basically every North African country west
6: of Egypt.
5: Algeria is also surrounded by six other countries in the area, although the Sahrawi people will tell you that Western Sahara is totally a separate country and it belongs to them, but we'll discuss that a little bit later in this video. And lucky enough, in the north, Algeria borders the Mediterranean Sea, which has played a huge crucial role in its nationalistic development and import-export economy. In fact, out of all the 48 provinces of Algeria, over 90% of the entire population lives in the upper 37 provinces that border the Mediterranean Sea, the remaining 10% living in the lower provinces which take up a landmass that is about seven times the size of all the upper 37 provinces combined. Some of these provinces like Tindouf and Elisi although huge barely even have 50,000 people inhabiting them. Now why do so many people want to live in the north part of Algeria and not the south? We're gonna answer that question in physical geography! If you look at a satellite map of Algeria, you'll notice that pretty much the only green part is in the north by the Tell Atlas mountain range. The reason being that this is pretty much the only region of Algeria that has a somewhat mild and wetter climate. And even though this region only takes up a small slice of the entire territory of Algeria, it is so crucial to these people. Only about 3% of Algeria's land is arable. That's not enough for them to sustain themselves agriculturally, and to this day about 45% of their food comes from imports. Pretty much everything south of the Tell Atlas Atlas mountain range is Saharan desert if you really look at this region, you'll notice communities and towns like Regane, Adrar, where they are actually kind of thriving and flourishing. The reason is because, like many other people groups in the Sahara, these people have mastered the art of desert agriculture. You might see these skidmark-looking things right next to the towns, and you might ask yourselves, what are these things? Well, if you look a little closer, those are actually date palm groves. And you'd be surprised if you look in the right place; you might actually be able to find a lot of underground water sources or oases, or maybe even lake or two in the Sahara. It's not completely devoid of water sources. Algeria has also completed the daunting task of building several trans-Saharan roadways that go throughout the entire Saharan desert into their southern neighbor countries such as Niger, Mali, and Mauritania. The people in this region can be very interesting. So interesting that we're going to talk about it in Demographics! Algeria has about 37 million people or roughly a little bit more than the size of Canada. You know, I think I'm probably going to end up using Canada a lot in terms of population comparison in this series, but eh. The vast majority of these people identify as ethnically Arab Berber. For those of you who don't know, the Berbers are a semi-nomadic people group who have historically occupied the region of the Maghreb for thousands of years prior to any empire or colonial occupation or modern day country establishment. The Berbers are a fascinating people group that have their own Culture, history and language and in fact to this day about a third of Algerians speak the Berber language in fact Algeria is one of the only two countries in the world that considers Berber a national language not quite official Morocco is the only one that makes it official however Algerians really do recognize it however Berber is so prevalent in many regions of Algeria that you shouldn't be surprised to see trilingual signs posted up all over the place in Arabic French and Berber in fact some of the Berbers in Algeria are also Saharawi. now what does that mean? Saharawi are basically people who believe that Western Sahara is theirs and it should belong to them and that it should become an independently recognized sovereign nation under their jurisdiction. See, after Spain left in 1975, the jurisdiction of Western Sahara pretty much went into the hands of Morocco and Mauritania. Unfortunately, there was a third party that was not too happy with that, the Sahrawis. Eventually, the Polisario Front was established, or the liberation movement for the Sahrawi people in Western Sahara, and they fought against both Mauritania and Morocco. Eventually, Mauritania backed down and Morocco somehow was able to take control of most of the major cities and resources and to this day it remains kind of under autonomous control under Morocco but the Sahrawis kind of take over the eastern part. It's complicated. Where Algeria comes into play? Well, Algeria kind of gives refuge to the whole Polisario front in the very western city of Tindouf. After all the drama with Morocco and...
1: Taiwan is to China as western Sahara is to Morocco.
5: Or Italia, The only place that the Sahrawis really had left to go was Algeria. You can imagine how that kind of probably made Morocco feel. Which brings us to our next segment, The Friend Zone. Now when it comes to Algeria, they generally get along with all the other countries in the Maghreb region, but when it comes to the Polisario front thing, it causes kind of a little bit of tension between them and Morocco. Algeria is a strong supporter of the Sahrawi independence movement, and Morocco just is not. Now in terms of business, Greece has always been one of their top trade partners. It also has friendly relations with Cyprus as it supports the Cyprus side of the Cyprus reunification movement, which doesn't really jive too well with Turkey. Now when it comes to France, things get a little interesting. See, in the early 1800s, France occupied and settled Algeria and pretty much made it an overseas dependency. Over the next century of their occupation, France greatly influenced the culture, the architecture, the cuisine, and even the language. To this day, French is the de facto language of Algeria. However, as you can guess, like most countries in former European colonial empires, Algeria started to kind of fight back. However, after independence, the Algerians kind of realized that the French influence had really permeated their culture so much that they kinda didn't exactly want to completely cut off the French altogether. And despite the drama and historical animosity, Algerians and the French have a relatively well diplomatic relationship today. It's almost kinda like the USA and England. Now in terms of their closest relationships, Algeria more or less might consider Tunisia and Libya their best friends considering that both countries support the Sahrawi independence movement and historically they've had a very rich in cultural similarity and resonance with each other. So in conclusion, Algeria isn't just another North African country, but it's a country that stands for things and survives and builds roads across the desert. You gotta give it to them. Plus, they got really good food there. Thanks for watching, and Dora is coming next.
1: Well, that was from my favorite channel, Geography Now. That was from eight years ago. (laughs) Now you guys can see why Barack Hussein Obama destroyed Sudan. You know, because it works for the bad guys too. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time, and it's like Morocco is leading this orchestra of. I would say it's all almost like ASMR. We're listening them chomp on all these nations with such deep history but as you saw algeria stands for things but what happened well let's just look at why was algeria a part of france but not a colony
7: When your powers grab territory, it usually stays separate from the lands of the metropole. India was a part of the British Empire, but not a part of Britain. The Philippines were a part of the Spanish Empire, but not Spain. But when the French first conquered Algeria, it wasn't long until it was incorporated into France proper. Not as a colony, but just as much a part of France as Normandy or Corsica. And given just how irregular this was, why did France do this? Why was Algeria a part of France itself and not a colony? So, as of 1827, this region was known as the Regency of Algiers, which officially was an Ottoman puppet state, but realistically it was independent. During the Napoleonic Wars, Algiers had provided food for Napoleon's armies, and 25 years later, its leaders were calling in the debt. France said no, tempers fled, and King Charles X blockaded the country to get its leaders to submit. They did not. This problem was timed well for King Charles, who was in a bit of trouble back at home and so to divert attention away from him, he ordered the invasion of the region. The Algiers' military was defeated quickly, but guerrilla-style resistance would carry on long afterwards. In case you're wondering, this expedition did little for Charles, since he would be gone soon afterwards, but his successor, Louis-Philippe, would oversee the conquest of these lands until 1848, which was a year in which, well, stuff happened. One of these stuff was when King Louis-Philippe was unkingified and the Second French Republic was proclaimed. A new republican constitution was drafted which importantly proclaimed that these areas in Algeria were formerly a part of France. The primary reason for this was that the creators of the constitution were worried that the ongoing instability in France could end up losing them Algeria. They were concerned that either the Ottomans or another European power would make an attempt to take it from them, or that whoever was appointed to govern it may side against the government if there was another revolution. As such, it was divided into three administrative sections and made a formal part of the country. And you would expect that as an integral part of this new republic, the Algerians would be given the same rights as any other Frenchman, but fun fact, no. Despite being a part of France proper, citizenship was reserved for two groups Those called the Pied Noirs, the descendants of French and European settlers and in 1870, after Napoleon III reformed the government, Algeria's native Jewish population There were two reasons for this The first was money, since the Jewish Algerians would be expected to pay taxes to fund things like wars against Prussia And second, by making hundreds of thousands of Algerians French, he gave them a stake in preserving French rule there meaning that there would be allies if things ever got interesting The Muslims of Algeria got nothing and were only considered to be French subjects and they were, by and large, treated the exact same as the natives in any other French colony like in neighbouring Tunisia or Morocco. So what changed? Well, the process of France losing Algeria was a slow one. There were no attempts to placate or help the native Muslims of the region until it became clear that there was a risk of losing Algeria for good. At first, it was believed that the ideals of the French Revolution and the superiority of French culture were so obvious that the native population would slowly but surely assimilate and become French themselves. Shockingly, this didn't happen, but after two world wars, the French population wanted to recognise the contributions of Algerians to the wars. Thus, in 1947, the French government gave citizenship and thus voting rights to Muslims in Algeria. Too late for any of that, though, since many of those living there wanted the French gone, and so it was time for war. The French fought incredibly hard to keep the colony, since it didn't want to abandon the idea of its civilising mission, nor did it want to accept that it couldn't defend the French living in Algeria. The problem was that bullets don't care about your pride, and once the death toll started to rise, it became clear that France couldn't hold the territory. Numerous governments fell over the issue, and in the end, it was only Charles de Gaulle, whose prestige allowed him to admit defeat and retain any popularity, that Algeria's position as a formal part of France came to an end. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and thank you for watching. With a special thanks to my patrons, James Bizanet, Kelly Moneymaker, Korsho Wolf, Adam Daughter, Jerry Lambdin, Jordan Longley, Rod D. Martin, YN Hockey, Gustav.
1: He makes some really good videos. So that's Algeria in a nutshell. Um, but, you know, if we're going to talk Algeria, we should also talk, you know, Napoleon. A lot of people don't know that it was Napoleon that sold Louisiana to the United States, but I digress. And why are we focusing on this region? Well, things are starting to heat up. See, when you create coups, federal coups, right, there's always got to be an antidote. And, well, as we're observing here in the United States, the antidote is the people. And obviously... If you're a great scriptwriter, you don't just have an antidote in one place when it's going on everywhere. I mean, phosphate is huge. Did you know that if you burn human bones, you can actually use the phosphate they have as fertilizer? I mean, human fertilizing. Human remains for fertilization. Where have we seen that before? Oh, that's right. When states within our nation have been passing weird laws about allowing to use human remains as fertilizers. Now, let's think a little bit. Let's just take a think. All of this is happening. We've got King Mohammed, right, a few months ago reaching out to Algeria after the Moroccan government has been replaced and after the Moroccan government now, most recently, just now, defunct on the Africa staying neutral on this Ukraine shit. So we have Morocco, where Petri dish boy, Barack Hussein Obama, really hails from. And he said it himself. Freud did slip and all. And um, they're pushing for the global order. They own everyone. Phosphate is in high supply. Oh, you Westerners think you're just going to kill your people and use them for fertilizer? Okay, sure. Now, (laughs) to continue, I think we should take a really, really short break and actually listen to a song. It's actually a Christian song, and it's of Algerian worship. Yeah, it is. And I think you might like it. I guess maybe the video might distract. But I think listening to praise in any language is pretty awesome. I'll see you guys in just a second. Get your coffee ready.
8: by what Napoleon wanted and the will of the French Empire. So in this alternate timeline, it is 1799. The Directory, composing of five directors, is on the brink of collapse. France is fractured, bankrupt, and in chaos. This issue was slowly solved when General Bonaparte took charge, but instead, his attempt at a coup fails and just creates anger across French Parliament. He is outcasted for his bold gamble at power. In this alternate timeline, France is more of the same as it's been for the last decade instability, corruption, bankruptcy, endless wars, there is no French Empire that conquered land and installed new leaders. Instead, there is just a country racked with corruption, bankruptcy, and fighting in the streets. This fighting is important to note. Without Napoleon, it's possible France would have just descended into absolute civil war. The policies of the revolutionaries sometimes alienated and openly discriminated against Catholics at times. This anti-Catholic mentality isolated a lot of still devout people who then chose to ally themselves with the Old Order of the Monarch. These tensions might explode in this alternate timeline, as lawlessness consumes what stability is left in France. This isn't too unimaginable. The War in the Vendee in our timeline led to Royalists and Republicans massacring enemy civilians in the streets. 200,000 people died in this single war. Royalist rebels were a significant problem for the French government. The foreign neighbors still wage war against the fledgling Republic as installing a monarchy back into power is their only objective.
1: Is their only objective monarchy power. Can you see the date 1799? Wasn't it around the time when there were revolutions across the world, but see, nobody makes those connections. Napoleon lived at the times where we were gaining our independence. Napoleon was doing all of that. And this is an alternate look at what if Napoleon didn't exist? Then what? It seems like controversial leaders are painted in broad brushes and then exiled islands uh, in, in the no-fly zone between South America and Africa. So weird considering It'll be a lot faster if you fly from Brazil to the west coast of Africa, but no, planes are not allowed to fly there. But see, people do not put one and one together. Did you see exactly what was going on? So let's just dabble a bit in this alternate timeline just for a little bit and come back to this one.
8: The specifics of these alternate wars in politics, I can't really say. But it's easy to assume it'd be the same players as the 1st through 7th coalition, so that's not much of a shock. By removing Napoleon, it's entirely likely new players could have come into influence in France, Maybe have their own policies like Napoleon or Robespierre. We're predicting from 1799 onwards, when it's possible in the turbulent French government, things could have changed very fast. It's pretty much certain the rest of Europe would have invaded once France became too tired to fight back and reinstall the monarch back to the throne. In this alternate timeline, without Napoleon, the Napoleonic Code would not exist. Shocking. But what is the Napoleonic Code? Before the French Revolution, laws and the interpretation of those laws changed entirely on where in France he went. Some factions held some control over some laws, others, and other laws. During the revolution, abolishing this was considered, but never put through until Napoleon. The Napoleonic Code was a clean slate, a secular and classless interpretation of the law and justice under it. It wasn't the first of its kind, but it certainly was the most widespread, thanks to war and stuff. While the term emperor doesn't convey the most liberal picture, and Napoleon in many ways was not fair in his policies, even wanting to bring slavery back, the legal code he spread is one that is a foundation across modern Europe, and eventually the world. But wait right there, kiddies! In our own timeline, Napoleon's wars shocked 19th century Europe so much, the victors decided to set a peace that would remain, so such an occurrence wouldn't happen again. Sound familiar? This was the Congress of Vienna and the effects of it kept Europe at peace for over 40 years and prevented a major war on the scale of the Napoleonic Wars until World War One. But this was also probably just a way to stop the ever-growing spread of liberal ideas.
1: Hold on a second, hold on a second. So Napoleon was around in World War One, right? (laughs) Whatever. Anyway, liberal ideas and all these nations decided to get together to take him out. Any single time someone led, they'd take him out. Napoleon, like Alexander the Great, had not conquered but liberated. They were trying to wake people up. This is why there are a lot of paintings and pictures that praise Napoleon and many that despise him. Now, here's what happens. Let's pretend we're all Napoleon and we see this great global order of six factions or participants, and uh, we see them all together, ganging up, and it's like all the countries came against Napoleon, like why, mind your business, he's doing his thing, you guys are conquering, I mean, no one went and, and, and attacked the United Kingdom for taking over Australia, for taking over all these nations, no one attacked the Vatican, no one attacked China, but they're all attacking Napoleon who brought in liberal ideas like how dare you say that the monarchies are no good how dare you give people freedom stop that no talking
8: liberal as in against monarchies and authoritarianism that sort of communist stuff you know in this alternate timeline without napoleon this council never happens and ironically isn't good for conservative monarchs as revolutionary fervor and liberal nationalism go unchecked across europe the early 19th century would not see peace but a period of massive upheaval and competition through war. So what does this change? The unification of Germany and Italy. Let me explain. Napoleon, in our timeline, destroyed the Holy Roman Empire, which at the time was basically just a united band of German kingdoms and small states which had existed for a thousand years but lost its luster. These numerous states were kingdoms, princedoms, free cities, and every little monarchy you can imagine. Napoleon came in, broke their toys, and simplified the borders, creating around 30 larger but simpler states under French control, known as the Confederation of the Rhine. While French dominance didn't last, the simpler borders did, under the new German Confederation. So while under French occupation, Germans began to see themselves along nationalistic lines thinking, wouldn't it be great if we couldn't get invaded so easily? In our timeline, liberal revolutions in 1848 spurred for calls of unity. But the question was, who would lead this new Germany? Well, Prussia, not who. And Prussia wanted a Germany controlled by Prussia. By the 1870s, Prussia had taken most of Germany, beat Austria and France, and declared a new German Reich in Paris after beating the French, setting the stage for everlasting friendships and love, of course, all thanks to Napoleon's occupation in the first place. In this alternate timeline without Napoleon, the Holy Roman Empire still struggles to continue on throughout the 19th century, including all the political squabbles inside of it. In fact, the Austrian Empire just simply doesn't exist. It was only declared because Napoleon declared an empire of his own. Because the Empire stays alive for a few more decades, that means there is no german confederation and no simple relatively way for prussia to rise prussia is unable to economically control the smaller german states there is never a sense of economic unity which drives the push for centralization which then allowed for a military victory to create an autocratic state we could see germany eventually unify but it would not be under the swift effectiveness of Otto von bismarck as in our timeline all options are open so to say germany could have went down different paths
1: Otto von Bismarck, same Bismarck family that founded the Dakotas and then it became just North Dakota, just pointing out a few things, you know, when dictators run, they run South America, North America, you know. Remember, the first intelligence service was founded by the likes of Rothschilds and Vanderbilts. If you watched enjoy the show, you would know that.
8: When unified, either an Austrian-dominated state with less centralized control, a liberal constitutional German monarchy like attempted in 1848, same flag too, or the autocratic militaristic Prussians who, through blood and iron, conquered their neighbors. Without Napoleon, the odds aren't simply put in Prussia's favor anymore. Your future is anything you make it. Now Italy shares the same story too. Napoleon destroyed many of the connections to the feudal powers on the Italian peninsula, simplifying the many entities into larger and more generalized states. This laid the groundwork for a sense of nationalism that, just as in Germany, allowed for a single state to unify and conquer the rest, this time Sardinia. Both countries just became larger examples of their previous kingdoms. In this alternate timeline, without Napoleon, Feudal lords still hold far more influence, and unification just never happens. The formation of Germany and Italy changed Europe forever. While good for the people that lived there, it directly led to the world wars. Remove Napoleon, you remove the entire unification wars. You remove the spread of Prussia, the rivalry and hatred between France and Germany. The entire 20th century is not just different, it is completely unrecognizable. It could change in ways that I can't even predict. Remember that whole peninsula war? And how that kicked out the Spanish and Portuguese monarchy? Well, by doing that, Napoleon kicked off a series of revolutions across Latin America, as many across the New World did not see Napoleon's brother as the true king. Very, very, very long story short, this set in motion a series of revolutions which resulted in the independence of all of Latin America from Spain and Portugal, just two decades later. Except for Cuba and Puerto Rico and a few other places. In this alternate timeline, with Napoleon never coming to power, he never invades Spain. The Spanish and Portuguese empires are not utterly destroyed by a five-year occupation at home. Instead, tensions would grow as liberal and revolutionary ideas spread across the New World, but there isn't an immediate spark like in our timeline. At home, they aren't utterly destroyed by the occupation, and so the problems caused by that do not affect the countries. You know, Franco, Civil War, that fun stuff. In this scenario, Spain and Portugal hold on to their colonies, at least for a few more decades, at most until the 1880s or 90s, That's good for them, not so good for the land of freedom. And this brings us to the United States. The U.S. and Spain had a pretty rocky relationship for the early 19th century. The U.S. was a growing power and was a threat to the weakening Spanish Empire, even before Napoleon. In this alternate timeline, that tension easily spills into violence. For example, Texan rebels revolting in New Spain territory wouldn't just cause a war between U.S. and Mexico, it'd cause a war between the U.S. and Spain but this is only one example. At this time, Manifest Destiny was everything to the US, and in this alternate timeline, it'd be a far harder endeavor. Here in America, we're taught that Napoleon sold Thomas Jefferson the Louisiana Territory, effectively doubling the size of the country, Many just leave it at that, as if Napoleon was just such a swell guy. However, before then, the French territory was actually handed over to Spain in the Seven Years' War. Napoleon secretly got the land back in a treaty, just three years before selling it off to the Americans. The only reason Napoleon sold the land to the U.S. was because his colonial ambitions failed when France was...
1: Actually, let's talk real history. So Napoleon was ousted and they sent him to some island, uh, <laughs> to the coast of Africa, I guess. And then they, and then he ran away and came back and took over his empire again. The second time he did, that's exactly what he had. He had a lot of territory. So he negotiated with the French when coming back into power and overthrowing people, saying, no, the French will be liberated. All the nations will be liberated. And he had a lot of territory. So he complied with the Spaniards to assist. It was more so the uh, north, uh, Northwest African fronts where the Spaniards were trying to gain t- control. We had the Portuguese. They were trying to keep hold of Brazil. So he negotiated portions of South America so that he can get that piece of America. And because he saw that in the United States, they had just targeted the monarchy, which was England. He said, I'd like to help you overthrow all the monarchs, including the Spaniards. Here's Louisiana, and you can give me some money, you know, the Louisiana Purchase, and you can give me some money so that I can continue my endeavors. But it seems like someone, one of our forefathers, or maybe two or three, backstabbed Napoleon, because then after that was actually revealed this tag team of helping George Washington and these ungrateful, ungrateful people that how dare they piss all over the crown of England. He was extradited to that island, I've done the show before, in the middle of nowhere, where he couldn't leave. He was smack in between Africa and South America. If you remember when we did that West Coast of Africa show. So let's see what other people tell us about Napoleon. Very interesting statements made. That was an actual, what if he never rose to power? Well, let's see what PragerU has to tell us about understanding Napoleon. Let's see what PragerU says.
9: Napoleon Bonaparte was the most famous man of the 19th century. At the peak of his power, he personally controlled more of the European continent than anyone since the great emperors of Rome. Today, most people see him as an ambitious little man with an outsized ego. Others see him as a forerunner of the great aggressor of the 20th century, Adolf Hitler. This portrait is as flawed as it is unfair. Napoleon Bonaparte was born on the 15th of August, 1769, on the Mediterranean island of Corsica. Ironically, the island, long connected to the city-state of Genoa, Italy, only became part of France the year before he was born. But for this twist of fate, Napoleon would never have been a French citizen, let alone its emperor. His parents sent him to the mainland at the age of nine, where he studied to be a soldier. His facility in mathematics, organisation and map reading marked him for future success. The French Revolution, with its overworked guillotine, provided a unique opportunity for advancement, that is, for anyone who could keep his head, literally. Napoleon did. He became a general by the age of twenty-four. At the age of twenty-six, he achieved a series of stunning victories in Italy against an Austrian army that had come to destroy the revolution and return the French royal family, the Bourbons, to the throne. These victories made him a national hero. As shrewd a politician as he was a general, by the first month of the new century, at the tender age of 30, Napoleon was the undisputed leader of France. He crowned himself emperor on December the 2nd, 1804, turning the French Republic into the French Empire with a Bonaparte line of succession. Napoleon's establishment of a French Empire only increased the fears of the royal houses of Europe and of France's historical enemy, Britain. As a result, in September 1805, Austria invaded Bavaria, a French ally, and Russia joined the attack. Napoleon and his Grande Armée roundly defeated them at the Battle of Austerlitz. The Prussians were the next to test Napoleon, declaring war on him in 1806. The Austrians tried again in 1809. Napoleon didn't start any of these wars, but he won them all. When Russia broke an uneasy peace in 1812, Napoleon decided to invade. But this proved his undoing. His catastrophic winter retreat from Moscow cost him more than half a million casualties. The end came in June 1815 at the Battle of Waterloo, where the...
1: Hold on. Wait. So you mean Napoleon went to Russia and froze, just like Hitler? Okay. Sounds like whoever was doing whatever had the same information. You should go to Russia and then die in the snow. Combined
9: European armies, led by the Duke of Wellington, decisively defeated Napoleon's forces. The battle could have gone either way. Wellington himself described it as the nearest run thing you ever saw in your life. In all, Napoleon won 46 of the 60 battles he fought, drawing seven and losing seven. His record clearly marks him as one of the greatest military commanders of all time. Yet, while Napoleon is best remembered for his military exploits, it's his political reforms both inside and outside of France, that had the most lasting effect. In France, he established the Code Napoleon, a distillation of 42 competing and often contradictory legal codes into a single body of French law. He modernised the French educational system and created the Sorbonne, which became one of the great universities of Europe. He promoted a building boom in Paris, a city whose architecture continues to enchant us. The bridges he built across the Seine and the sewer system he constructed beneath the city still function today. To Europe, Napoleon brought the best fruits of the French Revolution, concepts of equality and meritocracy. He liberated the Jews from the ghettos to which they had been confined for centuries, leading to an explosion of artistic, scientific, and economic innovation from this long-oppressed minority. It's hard to assess Napoleon because he was responsible for all these good things while also being responsible for much that was bad. But we can say this with certainty. To compare him to the murderous, oppressive dictators of the 20th century, like Hitler and Stalin, or their tin-pot versions like Saddam Hussein or Colonel Gaddafi, is a gross injustice. Napoleon was sui generis, unique unto himself, And proof positive that one man, given the right circumstances, can change history. I'm Andrew Roberts for Prager University. Thank you for watching this video. To help you videos free, please consider making
1: a... I think that's really interesting, isn't it? I think it is. But we can't talk about Napoleon and not do this.
0: La, 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 la.
1: History repeats itself. La, 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 Waterloo. Right? Well, you know what's funny? So, if you have a narrative within your nation that is contradictory, when you're overrun with propaganda, what do you do? What you do is you arm the citizens with knowledge. Now, let me show you some knowledge that, you know, brings really weird. Wait a minute. I thought that Morocco and Algeria are not on the same page. That's correct. That is super correct. So much that there are people thinking, oh, darn, there's tension surrounding Algeria and Morocco. Are they going to war? Because it's taking a turn for the worse, and it's been happening for almost a year. Both Muslim-majority countries have had a disagreement over Western Sahara sovereignty, which is now being led to a boiling point. Western Sahara, which has vast amount of Natural resources like phosphate and untapped oil and untapped oil, right, um, <coughs> makes this fight a little bit more interesting because Mar- Morocco and Algeria have both always criticized each other. Algeria is massive in size. Remember that. And as they criticize each other, you know, um, they've been doing that because the nations themselves have been, partnering with oppressive Western forces, what kind of oppressive Western forces is the question? Because what they want to do is help garner support to legitimize each country's grievances and, uh, you know, presence, right? Morocco wants to instill their authority. I mean, they did do some of that, didn't they, Brennan, with this whole Barack Hussein Obama thing. But Morocco has been criticized by Algeria many times for recognizing Israel or normalizing trade uh, with, you know, Israel. And it's like, well, why? Hold on. That's not the case. This is what they tell us. Because Algeria is in trade with Israel too. And Algeria actually is the only nation, I would say, that does not cause harm to Christians. But they have this insane apathy and anger toward specific factions of the Jewish population. And Algeria, on the other hand, is being criticized by Morocco for being so strong in their political relationships with like China and Russia, as well as supporting pro-Algerian separatist groups. Now, what does that mean? Well, when the Arab Spring sprung there were a lot of attempts to quash it, right? Hillary and uh, and Obama and Bush had created really good foundations, you know, to actually destroy uh, the relationships in the North African regions and the Saharan regions. I mean, they destroyed Sudan. Um, you should ask yourself why we don't hear about Sudan and we only hear about South Sudan. And Sudan is called Sudan and South Sudan is called South Sudan, but Sudan is not called North Sudan. There are are very important things we should be talking about because both of these countries, Algeria, which you saw is massive, has seriously ramped up their defense budget and they both are increasingly becoming hostile toward each other. And it's all about West Sahara. You know, and Turkey's upset with them too. And because, you know, the Algerians are like, no, Cyprus is Cypriot. Why are you messing with them? Like, why are they split in half? The Greeks are siding with the Algerians. And oh, seems like the Italians are starting to get in on the game recently too. And the Moroccan king, well, there was an overthrow of the Moroccan government. Suddenly, well, how did that happen is the question. What was behind the defeat of PJD? Well, let's see. Because now they have a political party in Morocco that strongly aligns with the king. And that should terrify everyone. Let me go to a little segment of this. Let's go from here. Incredible. Uh, Jasper, do
9: you see the same thing as Morocco gone back to how it was before uh, the Arab Spring, the Justice and Development Party, back to where it was, certainly.
10: Well, I definitely think that the the main uh, winners of the election have been, uh, is a choice for alignment with the the palace instead of a more uh, reformist or uh, combative attitude. But at the same time I think this has also introduced a new era in Moroccan politics where social media, technology uh, spending and having social media savvy young candidates as with the PAM party, it's becoming, uh, uh, yeah, as with the global trend, is becoming much more important in political life.
11: Uh. Okay, Larson,
9: the, the party that won is seen as being closer to the palace. The other two parties also royalist, you, you can say. Would the king be tempted to roll back the democratic reforms that there have been in, in Morocco now that there's a more favourable parties in in power?
10: I have seen reports of saying that uh, the parties are closer to the palace, but I think that's a theory that's probably not too relevant to Morocco in the sense that all the parties are in a sense close to the palace and also close to the monarchy. So I don't think that there is as it used before 2011, like there was somebody very close to the, par- to the palace who is trying to engineer the elections. I think these parties are, are, have worked more or less independently. But I don't think that there are not non-reformist parties among them, as Jasper said. For example, the Siklal party is a reformist party. The Socialist party is a reformist party. Even the PAM itself, which is the party of authenticity, is a reformist party. So I don't think there is this kind of problem, who is a reformist and who is not, and then also who is close to the palace and who is not. But I mean, at the same time, I think all of them go with specific kind of agenda of the state that the, it's better to move on and move beyond the Islamist spirit in the sense that the Islamists have disappointed. I mean like grandly in terms of like, uh, I mean, like delivering to the population, delivering on their promises. So I think there is that kind of, of sense that but, 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 to go back to what has been said, I mean, with regard to why the PGD fell, I mean, like, it's, 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 it's internal divisions within the PGD itself, but also I think the Day has run out of, of any kind of legitimizing discourse. Because in 2011, it ran against, like, the deep state and also corruption and all of that. In 2016, it ran also against those forces that but I mean, 2021, oh, wait there a is minute. no rallying cry. Wait but a minute, wait time- a minute.
1: They went up against the deep state. <laughs> That's so weird. Well, now, you know, apparently Morocco is also, you know, cultivizing marijuana for Europe. Yeah, it's going to be looking for ways to profit legally from medicinal marijuana. And their marijuana farms are doing fantastic because they've got a lot of phosphate. And everybody wants some of that. But the thing is, the most of the phosphate is found in Western Sahara, and Algeria. So here's where we are starting to see movement. I've been watching the media and no one in our media is talking about this. And this is quite important.
12: Very important. For his 23rd anniversary, Three. as King of Morocco, Mohammed VI, reached out for reconciliation with Algeria. Relations between the two countries have been strained for several months over the disputed territory of Western Sahara. I would like to stress once again that the borders that separate the Moroccan and Algerian peoples will never be barriers that prevent their interaction and
2: understanding. Rabat has
12: been putting forward a broad autonomy plan under Moroccan sovereignty supported by many countries but rejected by Algiers backing the separatist Polisari front. In his address, Mohammed VI asked Moroccans to spread fraternity and solidarity, denouncing those who infused hatred between the two. The allegations that Moroccans insult Algeria and Algerians are the work of irresponsible individuals who go to great lengths to sow discords between the two brotherly peoples. These slanders on moroccan algerian relations are totally senseless and sincerely appalling. As far as we're concerned, we've never allowed nor will allow anyone to harm our brothers and neighbors. Last year, the king had already chosen to address a message of peace to its neighbor. An unsuccessful attempt, as in August, Algeria cut diplomatic ties with Morocco, accusing it of hostile actions.
13: A call for solidarity directed towards Morocco's direct neighbors in Algeria, which cut off ties with the kingdom one year ago. In a speech, the king of Morocco emphasized not the spat with the neighboring state,
0: but brotherhood. The allegations that Moroccans insult Algeria and Algerians are the work of irresponsible individuals who go to great lengths to sow discord between the two brotherly peoples. These slanders on Moroccan-Algerian relations are totally senseless and sincerely appalling. As far as we are concerned, we have never allowed, nor will we allow, anyone
14: to harm our brothers and neighbors.
13: The relations between the countries are strained. Algeria broke off diplomatic ties with Morocco in 2021, citing, quote, hostile acts. One of these acts were forest fires in Algeria that the country blamed on Morocco. Another was the wider dispute over the Western Sahara, where Algeria backed the Polisario Front in its demand for a referendum to decide the future of the territory, while Morocco claims it as part of its own land. Ahead of Morocco's normalization of ties with Israel in 2020, the United States acknowledged Morocco's sovereignty over the Western Sahara. Algeria, on the other hand, is a staunch ally of the Palestinians and does not officially recognize the Israeli state.
4: In all cases, Algeria refuses to submit to unacceptable behaviors and actions that it strongly condemns. Algeria has decided to cut diplomatic relations with the Moroccan Kingdom starting today.
13: The new Moroccan charm offensive is not likely to change the Algerian government's stance. As long as substantial disputes such as the conflict over Western Sahara are not resolved, it will be difficult for Moroccans and Algerians to see each other as brothers, irrespective
1: of what the king says. Fascinating. Super fascinating. Well, let's see what, you know, the mainstream media has told you about Algeria. Well, Algeria... Morocco, they're all intertwined again. Territories. Here's what Middle East Eye wanted to tell the world two years ago.
15: Twenty seconds one year ago, Algerians took to the streets demanding change. what was particularly notable about these particular protests was the fact that Algerians from all levels of society from civil society all the way to you know ordinary Algerians in the streets who basically were fed up with Bouteflika and his government and wanted to see genuine reforms. They wanted to see a government that was from the people for the people. Even though Bouteflika was the president of Algeria since 1999 for, uh, for 20 years, he had very little say in the decisions uh, of the country. The military has always had a hand in how the state of affairs are ruled in Algeria. And they handpick uh, the civilian government in the military coup in 1992, uh, which prevented the Islamic salvation from, from democratically uh, running elections
0: country descended into 10 years of violence
15: when the f- protests first broke out, the head of uh, the army, Ahmed Gayad Saleh, basically threatened the people that if they continued to, to take to the streets, they would either see the same level of violence witnessed during the 90s or they would see the same violence that was witnessed in Syria. So the Algerian regime has used the rhetoric of violence coverly to dissuade people from using the street as a medium to voice their frustrations. And the current generation who were born after the independence war, who were born after the 90s, who didn't necessarily witness that type of Depravity, that type of rhetoric, it simply isn't going to stand anymore and
2: it hasn't stood. After
15: Bouteflika stepped down, had one individual who was an obstacle to the goal of seeing a genuine democratic.
1: So basically, these people are where we went during J6 two years ago three years ago and they've just been taken over and I'll show you how.
15: Transition. And that was the military chief, Ahmed Saleh, uh, come December 12th when people were supposed to go out and vote. It was no surprise then that many people chose the day to protest. They were setting alight uh, electoral offices, destroying ballot boxes. This was pretty much a, a clear message that these elections were illegitimate for large swathes of the population. <laughs>
0: Oh, Abdulmajeed
15: Taboun emerged victorious in the first round of elections with 58% of the vote, uh, even though participation rate was extremely low, below 40%. Taboun served under Putafrika. He was appointed. Uh, Prime-
1: Guess who rigged those elections? That's right. I hope you guys are paying attention because here is where, you know, like I said, you got to watch the Mediterranean because it's heating up. Here's where you see the writing on the wall. Hold on. Let me show you what Morocco just did. Just. Uh, <laughs> little bit over a week ago
6: by deciding to permit the transfer of its upgraded T-72B tanks to Kiev, Morocco has finally broken Africa's neutrality in the ongoing conflict in Ukraine making it the first African nation to offer military support to Ukraine this report has been speculated by French Czech and Ukrainian statements and will undoubtedly deal a distinctive blow to Russia's efforts to foster African neutrality Morocco's action appears to have been prompted by pressure from the US and the European Union, because according to reports, the transfer of 90 T-72B tanks to Ukraine, along with spare parts and other components, was reportedly approved by the Moroccan government at the request of the US. These tanks are being heavily modernized by the Czech company Excalibur, and are being diverted to Ukraine. Excalibur Army's commercial director Richard Kubina, allegedly told local media that the company received a large order for the modernization of up to 120 T-72 MBTs from an African country, without naming any country. The company stated that it would send 90 African tanks to Ukraine as part of a $97 million contract funded by the United States and the Netherlands, and also discussed the possibility of purchasing an additional 30 units next year. According to the Warzone, the United States and the Netherlands agreed to split the cost of refurbishing 90 T-72Bs for Ukraine. It was later revealed that the tanks diverted to Ukraine were originally intended for Morocco. In exchange for agreeing to the T-72B tanks to tour, Morocco reportedly has the option to purchase other military equipment. According to Pentagon spokeswoman Sabrina Singh, The reason for sending refurbished Soviet-era tanks rather than modern Western tanks such as the M1 Abrams is that Ukrainians are well adept at using these tanks on the battlefield. She added that introducing new main battle tanks was going to be extremely expensive, time-sensitive, and would be a massive undertaking for Ukrainian forces. Even so, while the T-72 is part of a family of Soviet-era main battle tanks that went into production in 1969. The T-72B is a modified version with a new gun, armor, improved stabilization and firepower, as well as night vision and crew protection. Morocco, which is known to have at least 60 T-72s in storage and buys more than 90% of its arms from the US, has not issued an official confirmation. The majority of its inventory is made up of much more powerful American main battle tanks. It is worth noting that Morocco itself has a long-standing feud with Algeria, which has a particularly close relationship with the Kremlin. As a result, the Moroccan Kingdom may be more impervious to Russian influence than others. Russia has made significant investments in efforts to maintain the African continent's neutrality and perhaps tilt its affinity towards the Kremlin. These measures have included the unveiling of five so called Russia houses in Africa this fall in an effort to increase the nation's influence and an ongoing propaganda campaign that highlights the Soviet Union's support for anti colonial movements in the 20th century. It is clear that the Kremlin values this support, and it is simple to understand why. Africa as a whole has served as a fruitful ground for Russian arguments. In fact, A total of 28 African nations, including Morocco, did not participate in the first significant United Nations vote after the invasion to denounce Russian aggression. Also, when the UN voted in April to suspend Russia's membership in the Human Rights Council, only 10 of 54 African states supported the resolution, 9 opposed it, and 35 abstained or were absent. And again when the United Nations passed a historic resolution requiring Russia to pay reparations to Ukraine in November, five African countries voted against it, while 27 abstained. But this does not imply that Africa has been unconcerned by the conflict. For one, it is no secret that Ukraine supplies half of all sunflower oil, 10% of the world's wheat, 15% of its corn, and 13% of its barley, hence the conflict and the ensuing Russian blockade have been of paramount importance. After all, astronomical food prices and spiking inflation rates have become the crux of revolutions. The largest food crisis in decades was foreshadowed by the United Nations, and according to the African Development Bank, at one point, the cost of wheat in Africa had increased by 45%. As the effects of its actions started to negatively impact its allies, the Kremlin started to become concerned about the situation. The New York Times opined that Africa needs food, and the Kremlin needs allies, pointing out that 14 of the continent's states import more than half of their wheat from Russia and Ukraine. Notably, the leader of the African Union attacked Western sanctions while in Moscow in June, addressing Putin as Dear Vladimir. In the month after, Russia approved the restart of Ukrainian grain exports. In the meantime, Russia continues to be active on a continent. Foreign Minister Sergey Lavrov has made numerous trips to the area to emphasize that the West is to blame for the war and its repercussions, which include rising food prices. The son of Uganda's President, General Muhuzi Kaneriga, who is viewed as being prepared to succeed his father, Yoweri Lusavani, was sympathetic to that message and praised the Russian invasion on social media opining that the majority of mankind that are non-white support Russia's stand in Ukraine and claim that Putin is absolutely right. In fairness, Russia's efforts predate its full-scale war. Vladimir Putin hosted a Russia-Africa summit in 2019 that was attended by over 40 African leaders. Within a year, Russia had become Africa's largest arms supplier, and reports suggest the Kremlin had sanctioned the deployment of Wagner Group mercenaries across many African countries, including the Central African Republic, Libya, and Mali, where they have been accused of mass killings, human rights violations including torture, and dubious deals for resources such as gold and oil. Russia continues to attempt to sway public opinion in Africa through its national television network, RT, formerly known as Russia Today, and no longer broadcast in the majority of Europe and North America.
1: Whoa. No longer broadcast in the majority of Europe and North America. So then you have to wonder, why are they silencing something that people could totally see as fake? Well, here's why. Here's what's coming to America Now, there was this man, right, a man, whose name is Ihsan El-Kadi. He was an independent journalist. Why do I use past tense? Gosh darn it, they just arrested him. Independent journalist, free from the bounds of political funding and consumer funding. A voice of freedom for the people of Algeria. A voice of trying to liberate the people and he had his own radio show. They just arrested him today in Algeria. In other words, Algeria has fallen. Who done it?
14: December 2022, here's our top story. The last non-state controlled media space in Algeria, the headquarters of Radio M has been closed. Ihsan al-Kadi, who heads the media organization, was arrested on the night of Friday to Saturday, about 60 kilometers east of the capital, Algiers. The scene upset the journalists of both Radio M and the emerging Maghreb news website. Ehsan al-Kadi, their director, was brought handcuffed on Saturday evening, December 24th, to the headquarters of the two media entities in the center of Algiers by agents of the Algerian General Directorate of Internal Security. The latter proceeded to a search and seizure of computer and filming equipment before sealing the premises and leaving. No indication has been given officially on the reasons for this new arrest. Is it the result of a recent article in which Ihsan Kadi evoked the attitude of the army regarding a possible second term of President Abdul-Majeed Tabun? Is this perhaps the result of his last tweet in which he sharply disputes the assertion of the president on the recovery of $20 billion from the oligarchs who gravitated around the clan of former President Abdulaziz Bulaflika? Quote, bad weather for press freedom and for all democratic freedoms in Algeria, end quote, reacted Abdul uh, Faisawi, the president of the Association uh, for Youth Movement, which was dissolved in October, 2021 by the authorities. For him, Radio M and Maghreb Emergent were, quote, the last samurai of the free press in Algeria, end quote. My name is Bilal Abdul Karim. Jazakum al-Khayra. Assalamu alaikum.
1: So, in other words, a journalist that it was the last non-state-funded journalist in Algeria was just arrested. Yet our media doesn't say much. They're not speaking about it. And the question is why? Journalist imprisonment is a big deal. By jailing el Khadi, who's the director of Radio M, Algerian authorities are clearly making it clear that anyone criticizing the government is done. He ran uh, um, media outlets called Reporters Without Borders. No, no binds, no blackmail. All 100% people funded. Proof of concept is always there, with a few tweaks. There's a lot of radio M's going around the world that you haven't heard of, but this one is pretty prevalent. So him being arrested, uh, you know, on the 29th of December and no one talking about it is a big deal. He's been charged under the law of, get this, fundraising under Article 95 and 95B of the Penal Code on the funding of organizations that pose a threat to state security. Sounds identical to the Ministry of Truth that we have going on in our nation from DHS. That is a big deal. That is a very, very, very big deal. And no one is saying a word. Article 95B in Algerian law provides a prison sentence of five to seven years. And it really clearly means that You're inciting or performing acts likely to undermine the security of the state. Security of the state is that, yo, you're rigging elections. This guy is aligning with Morocco. We, the people of Algeria, wish to remain independent. We, the people of Algeria, support West Sahara. But, you know... Morocco just gave a couple of tanks. I mean, America and France said, Hey, Morocco, if you send that, maybe we'll give you West Sahara. We'll acknowledge it. You can have all the phosphate and you could be super in power. And it's like, someone should remind the Moroccan king how that worked out for Chavez. Someone should remind the king how that worked out for a lot of other leaders that were promised. You'll have a seat at the table with the big boys. You can take over. Now, al Qadi's lawyer and his family, you know, don't understand the link between what they're saying and, you know, how his journalistic actions are causing this. It's horrible because in placing him in detention, the authorities are clearly deciding to take draconian, you know, a muzzle to anyone saying anything. They're so upset. and. Just so you know, the reporters without borders um, that are represented in North Africa in general are seriously concerned because this has now sealed the deal that Algeria is moving against the Algerians. They didn't come at him at one go, this reporter. They actually had interrogated him and Questioned this reporter, I think somewhere around October, November this year. It was before Thanksgiving, I believe. And um, even in 2021, on the eve of the elections, he was detained for 30 hours. So he doesn't disrupt elections. Are you paying attention? He was held in prison for 30 hours. So he doesn't disrupt elections with his radio show telling people what to do. If you remember, you saw them chucking ballots out the window and torching the place. Well, this leadership in Algeria is not lining up with what the Algerian people want. And that's pretty insane. They're taking it back to the Iraq protest anniversaries that happened years ago. Um, in fact, a year ago, hold on, France 24. 24 TV actually did a thing. Hold on, let me pull it up.
11: Here. Walid Mekhish's testimony has shocked many in Algeria. This pro-democracy student said he was tortured and sexually abused by members of Algeria's National Security Services. <laughs>
0: Walid Nekish was arrested in
11: 2019 during a protest against the Algerian regime. He was sentenced to six months in jail for plotting against the state. Nakish was released earlier this month because he had already spent a year in detention. After hearing his story, several Algerian NGOs have decided to create a committee against the torture of political prisoners.
2: C'est un procès équitable. On n'a pas condamné directement les tortionnaires. On a déposé plainte. On a dit à la justice d'intervenir selon les lois internes et internationales.
11: Following Nikishi's testimony, prosecutors in Algiers have launched an investigation. The National Human Rights Council, which is close to those in power, welcomed the decision
10: and uh, Analysts said
11: the regime is currently nervous as the two-year anniversary of the Hierarch movement looms. The anti-regime protests began on the 22nd of February 2019 and forced former President Abdelaziz Bouteflika to resign two months later.
1: Placed. The guy they placed couldn't keep, the, couldn't keep him in check, so they just replaced him with someone else who was his understudy. What? And then the people are complaining about that, so how dare you speak against our corruption? How dare you? We will throw you in, and that is it. Now, I want you guys to know that in early 2019, t- millions upon millions of Algerians actually took the streets. I was highly against this. I I express my concerns to to those on my shows that I do as a guest in different countries. Right, um, other countries hear my voice too, and I think I've mentioned it before. And the popular uprising of this Hark movement had, you know, it was from before. It was always there. It was to combat the Arab Spring. Now, in 2019, the protest movement encompassed a very large portion of Algerian society. There was a sense of national unity that was absent um, since their civil war in the 90s. Thank you, Bush. Thank you, Clintons. Right. But it was mainly between the Islamist insurgents, the creation of ISIS. And by the way, we do have an ISI agent in the Pentagon right now talking, Singh, right? Her? You're right. So anyway, the Iraq movement, when it erupted, um, it, they tried to like silence the protests, reminding Algerians, oh, the war in the 90s was so bad. We don't want to revisit that. You know, this is really bad. President Bouffdelica, you know, had a stroke in 2013, you know, and he was a zombie like Biden. And his understudy, who kind of was like Bush senior was to Reagan, then gets elected. And I'm using air courts later. Now Algerians uh consider their revolution a, a one of a smiling revolution, right? Um because it's peaceful. And it's actually in their slogan yeah, which is like which means peaceful. They have cracked down on the potential that the Harak movement had, which was getting people into office. So what the movement did and what this reporter was doing was holding the judiciary accountable and holding traditional and emerging political parties that want to replace old guards versus new accountable. They've actually dissolved civil society organizations. They helped exclude foreign influence in their government. In essence, this civilian coalition that was created was to push people to run and effectively evict the ruling elites and it was a while they were trying to say oh we're gonna have change through continuity they were like no take your continuity and put it up your butt we don't want you guys we need people running not you so the promotion was to actually get algerians into office so that they can relieve the oppression that they feel and be heard better. They wanted their own people in office. And so they started the whole lawfare thing and people running and the people were supporting those running. Hence the fundraising laws that they came after him. Oh, you crowdfunded to run these people? That's illegal. But it's not. See, this is it. How did Taboon become president in 2019 when less than 40% turned up Yet he won by what? That's so weird. And so while the Algerian government is saying it's foreign influence influencing these uprisings within Algeria, it's actually foreign influence that has taken over their elections <coughs> so that they can have, and I quote, where have we heard this before? Continuity of government. And this is where we're at. We have journalists, the last non-state owned outlet outlet taken over. And you know what I think? America's saying, hey, monster, evil, deep state, globalist, you want to take me? Take on me then. See you guys tomorrow for the New Year's Eve show. God bless.